Hello, and welcome to another edition of Incremental Doom. Tonight is the fourth and final episode of the tortuous tale of the tortured lives of Basil and Rosemary. In the previous episode, Basil scattered suddenly amidst scandal, leaving Rosemary mateless. She sought consolation by sordid sorcery, while Mr. Velan saw a solution as a self-serving suitor. After a year, before the eyes of both, a humble beggar became high-born Basil. Will the twins be one again? How? At whose expense? The Infernal History of the Ivy Bridge Twins By Molly Tanzer Part 4 The Conclusion Detailing the Reunion of the Ivy Bridge Twins An Account of the Singular Manner in Which Rosemary Defeated the Gangrene That Threatened Her Continued Good Health What the Narrator Hopes the Listener Will Take Away from This Infernal History You! cried Mr. Vilan in alarm. How dare you? How can you? They said the Navy would keep you at least a decade in the service of this country. They, demanded Rosemary. Who? The press gang, blustered Mr. Vilan. For the sum I paid them, I'll have them. But the infernal twins never discovered what Mr. Vilan's intentions were regarding the unsatisfactory press gang. For Rosemary, overcome with grief and rage, snatched the flintlock pistol out of Basil's grasp and shot Mr. Velan through the throat. A fountain of blood gushed forth from just above Mr. Velan's cravat pin, soaking his waistcoat and then the carpet as he gasped his surprise and fell down dead upon the ground. Basil, she said. Basil, I'm so... I didn't... You married him. It was all mother's doing said Rosemary, rather hurt by his tone. But... You were gone, she snapped. And lest Mr. Velan marry some common slut and turn mother and myself out of our house... Even with such reasonable excuses, it was some time before Rosemary could adequately cajole Basil out of his peevish humor. Indeed, only when Rosemary asked if Basil had lived as a monk during the years of their estrangement, did he glower at her as he had used to do and embraced her. They sat companionably together then, and Basil gave her a truer account of his absence from Calipash Manor. The carven ivory head which our loathsome former tutor bequeathed unto me on the fifteenth anniversary of my birth was the instrument, strangely, of both my undoing and my salvation, said Basil. Mr. Velan lied to me that I was the manifestation of the old god which it represents. Indeed, I believe now that his intention was to take me away from you, so that he might have you for his own. That I, like my father before me, would be driven to suicide by the whispered secrets of that divine entity. Little did he know that while I am not some sort of fleshly incarnation of that deity, I was born with the capacity to understand his whispered will and walk along the sacred paths that were more often trod when his worship was better known to our race. I believe once Mr. Velan saw that I was only mildly troubled by these new visions, he concocted a plot to be rid of me in a less arcane manner. The night before you discovered my absence, 
he let himself into my chambers and put a spell upon me while I slept that made me subject to his diabolical will. I awoke a prisoner of his desire, and he bade me rise and do as he wished. Dearest sister, I tell you now that you did not detect a forgery in my note, for it was written by none other than myself. After I had penned the false missive, Mr. Velan bade me follow him down to Ivybridge, whereupon he put a pint of ale before me and compelled me, via his fell hold upon me, to act in the manner of a drunken commoner, brawling with the local boys until the constable was called and I was thrown in jail. I was unrecognisable due to my long isolation, and my sentence was, as I told you, forced conscription into the Navy. To a certain point, my tale as I told it to you whilst in the character of the scoundrel Valentine was true. I suffered much on my voyage to Jamaica, and was subsequently sold as a slave. What I did not tell you was the astonishing manner of my escape from that abominable plantation. My master hated me, likely because he instinctively sensed his inferiority to my person. My manners mock me as a noble individual, even when clad in rags, and being that he was a low sort who was considered a gentleman due to his profession rather than his birth, my master gave to me the most dangerous and disgusting tasks. One of his favourite degradations was to station me at the small dock where the little coracles were tied up, so that I could be given the catches of fish to clean them, constantly subjected to wasp stings and cuts and other indignities of that sort. Yet it was this task that liberated me, for one afternoon I arrived at the dock to see the fisherman in a tizzy, as one had the good fortune of catching a dolphin. The creature was still alive, incredibly, and I heard its voice in my mind as clearly as I heard their celebration. Save me, and I shall save you, it said unto me, in that language that has always mocked me as a backend to the God of which I earlier spoke. I picked up a large stick to use as a cudgel, and beat the fisherfolk away from their catch, telling them to get back to work, as the cetacean was of no use to our master. He should want snapper or jackfish for his dinner, rather than oily porpoise flesh. They heeded me, for they were a little afraid of me. Often, as you might imagine, dear sister, bad things would happen to those who chose to cross me in some way. And I heaved the dolphin back into the sea. At first I thought it swam away, and that it had merely been sun madness that had earlier made me hear its voice. But then, after the fisherman had paddled out of sight the dolphin surfaced with a bulging leather satchel clutched in its beak. It contained gold and jewels that my new friend told me were gathered from shipwrecks on the ocean floor, and that I should use this wealth to outfit myself as a gentleman and buy passage back to England. The creature's only caveat was that upon my arrival I must again visit the sea and return to one of its kin the ivory head, as our tutor had not, as it turns out, been given the object. Rather, it seems that Mr. Veland defiled an ancient holy place near Delphi during his travels in Greece by stealing the artifact away from its proper alcove. I agreed to these terms, and, after waiting at the docks for a little longer so that I might poison the fish it was my duty to clean, and thus enact a paltry revenge upon my tyrannical master, hastened back to Devonshire, 
as I knew nothing of your situation but feared much. Upon returning home, I assumed the persona of Valentine as a way of ascertaining if, in my absence, your sentiments had changed toward your long-absent brother and the manner in which we were accustomed to living with one another. Seeing your heart go out to such a picaroon assured me of your constancy, and I regret very much that I earlier so impugned your honour. But sister, now that you know of my distresses, you must tell me of yours. Pray, how did you come to be married to Mr. Velan, and so afflicted by the disease that I see nibbles away at your perfect flesh? Rosemary then recounted what has already been recorded here, and she and Basil resolved upon a course of action that shall compose the denouement of this chronicle. Both were determined that the gangrenous affliction should not claim Rosemary, but until Lady Calipash, wondering why her daughter did not come down to dinner, intruded into the parlor where the siblings colluded, they could not see how. The idea occurred to the twins when Lady Calipash's alarm at seeing Mr. Velan's corpse upon the carpet was so tremendous that she began to scream. Basil, fearing that they should be overheard and the murder discovered before they had concocted an adequate reason for his unfortunate death, caught Lady Calipash by the neck when she would not calm herself. As he wrapped his fingers about her throat, Basil noticed the softness of his mother's skin and looking deeply into her fearful eyes, saw that she was still a handsome creature of not five and thirty. Sister, he began, but Rosemary had already anticipated his mind. She agreed that she should immediately switch her consciousness with Lady Calipash's, by means of witchcraft she and Basil had long ago learned, and once utilized in their youthful lovemaking, from the donkey-headed eel creature they had conjured and henceforth inhabit her own mother's skin. This was done directly, and, after securely locking Rosemary's former body, now occupied by their terrified mother, into the family crypt, along with Mr. Velan's corpse, mother and prodigal son, rather than brother and sister, had a carriage made ready. They drove to the head of the river Plym, whereupon Basil summoned one of the aquatic priests of his god, and handed over the relic that has figured so prominently in their narrative. To conclude, the narrator hopes that listeners of this history will find this account entirely mortifying and disgusting, and seek to avoid modeling any part of their behavior upon that of the infernal Ivy Bridge twins. Though, to be fair, it must be recorded that, for all the duration of their cacodemonical lives, the twins preserved the tenderest of affection for each other. Still, there never has been found anywhere in the world a less worthy man or woman than they. And, until the moonless night when the twins decided to join the ranks of the cetaceous worshippers of their unholy deity, Lord Calipash being called thence, his sister long missing her former amphibious wanderings, there was not a neighbor, a tenant, or a servant who did not rue the day they came into the company of Basil and Rosemary.
For additional tales of literary horror to unsettle you, click the follow button for this podcast. Incremental Doom. Exponential Entertainment. I'm Edgar.